Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, broadcasting live every Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. Central, from Panama City Beach, Florida, home of the world's most beautiful beaches. I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone for joining me on my weekly broadcast. Every week, I'll feature some of the best instructors, coaches, authors, and entrepreneurs in the golf business today. I begin with a great discussion on Coach's Corner, followed by an insightful interview with my special guest. So let's get started by introducing tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico. And uh, as always, we've got a great show for you. We're going to be starting off here in just a moment or two uh, with a great discussion on the Coach's Corner panel this evening. And I've got uh, two great guys. Uh, 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 one program note, though, and I'll explain that in just a moment. And then a little bit later on, I'm going to be joined once again by my very special guest, Dr. Joe Parent, uh, best-selling author of Zen Golf, Mastering the Mental Game. He's going to be joining me on the second half of the show. So make sure you stick around for that. Uh, as always, uh, you can follow the show by going to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live or just simply type in golf talk live up in the search key and that will take you to the main uh, hosting page if you will of the program and as always every thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m central uh front and center will be the show you can listen to it live thursday nights uh, during that time slot and for some reason if you can't join us live just visit that website blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live and just scroll down the page to the on-demand section, and all of the shows uh, in their entirety will be there in the uh, on-demand section, so you can check them out there. Um, all right, so let me uh, first remind everybody, of course, the show is sponsored by uh, iGolf Sports uh, Network and Golf Tips Magazine. Uh, iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And, of course, Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, offering insightful reviews on the latest equipment, Tips from top PGA and LPGA teacher professionals, all designed to help improve your game from tee to green. So subscribe today at golftipsmag.com. All right, as I mentioned, a quick program note. Uh, one of the gentlemen that was supposed to join me tonight, unfortunately, uh, had to cancel last minute. So uh, very generously, one of the others decided to step up and, uh, and fill his time slot uh, this evening here on the panel. And that, of course, I'm talking about John Decker, good friend. He's a PGA teacher professional based in the Columbus, Ohio area. And uh, he's also a senior editor and Golf Tips Top 25 instructor. Uh, back in 2015, uh, he was the Southern Ohio Teacher of the Year. And uh, prior to that, he was a head instructor at the Grand Cypress Academy in Orlando, where he worked under top uh, 100 instructors Fred Griffin and the late Phil Rogers. Uh, he's also the author of Golf Is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game, which, of course, includes a Bible study. Uh, also, uh, Becoming a, has become a good friend is Paul Castor, uh, one of the country's leading golf coaches, uh, Golf Channel Academy lead coach, uh, recognized by Golf Digest as one of the best teachers in New Jersey uh, for 2017 and 18. He's also been honored by U.S. Kids Golf as one of uh, 2017's top 50 kids teachers. Uh, he's Level 2 Certified Titleist uh, Performance Institute, or TPI for short, uh, Aimpoint and K-Motion and also serves on Foresight Sports Advisory Board and the New Jersey PJ's Junior Golf Committee. So, guys, welcome to Coach's Corner here on Golf Talk Live. Thanks for having us, Ted. Thank you, Ted. All right, so we're going to talk about uh, some, some different tips 
if you will, and I'm going to um, do them in the order that I introduced both of you. So, uh, John, we'll start with you first. Um, we're going to talk about uh, it was sort of an extension. Last week on the panel, I talked with the with the guys um, about uh, some golf tips to improve your game. And it's not just the typical golf tips of lining everything up just so. There's some other areas as well that uh, are very, very important. And uh, this first one is uh, for you, John, and is having a process before your round. And let me just explain a little bit. So if you have some time before your round, try to establish a process that gets your mind and body ready for the round. This gives you the best chance of success and will reduce some of the nerves that affect every golfer early in their round. So maybe you can just talk a little bit about that, some things that golfers can do. Obviously, they're going to warm up maybe a little bit if they've allowed themselves the time. But what are some other ways that they can get themselves prepared and establish, as I said, that process uh, before their round? Well, Ted, thank you, first of all, for having me on the show. And, Paul, I look forward to tonight's discussion with you as well. Um, I think this is really an interesting uh, topic to talk about because one of the things that I encourage my students to do, uh, obviously, is before they get to the to the golf course, is I like to, you know, I, I encourage them if they can, you know, like if they're playing on a Saturday morning, maybe they have a 10 o'clock tea time, is to get up early, try to go out and take a walk, try to get your body moving, try to get in motion. If you can't go outside and walk, maybe you could do a treadmill or something along those lines. Uh, if you don't have a treadmill, you can swing like an orange whip or do anything that you can to, to loosen up, you know, before you actually get to the golf course. I think that's, that's important as well. Now, if you have a long drive, then, you know, maybe a 30 or 45 minute drive or an hour drive to the course, then wait till you get to the golf course to do some of those things to warm up. And then the, the other thing that I encourage, you know, players to do is to eat properly before they're round uh, and get hydrated. Um, you know, it's very important to be hydrated uh, in golf because uh, I remember playing on the mini tours down in Florida and I was really playing well, but I got on the last couple of holes. It was a really hot day and I could, I just couldn't think straight. I couldn't even add the numbers up properly in my, my mind with the yardages and everything. And after the round, I realized that I had not been drinking enough water. Um, you know, and so water is very important that you're constantly putting fluids in your body you know, being hydrated, having food in your stomach, not waiting to the halfway house and, you know, getting a hot dog or something like that, something real filling. You need to, you need to get some food in you early, uh, and you need to try to have something to snack on through the round. I think stuff like that is very important, especially if you're a competitive golfer uh, and you're going to be walking. Uh, you're going to be putting in, you know, 8, 10, 12 miles of walking depending on the golf course and uh you know that's a lot that's uh you know that's a five five hours of walking plus warming up and all that stuff that you're you're doing you know with in the game swinging the club so you're going to burn a lot of calories so you know having fuel in your body is is very important um and and i also think that you know you know if you're dealing with anxieties like first tee jitters things like that it's very important that you show up to the golf course on time if you're showing up to the golf course you know 20 minutes before your tee time, I don't care really how, how uh, casual the round of golf is, you're probably not going to play very well. You're not going to get warmed up. You're going to be rushing. You're, you're, you're not going to be in a good frame of mind. So at a bare minimum, 30 minutes is the minimum. I like to show up anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour before my tee time. That gives me plenty of time to get ready, to get organized, and, um, and, and get out on the golf course. So those are some tips that would help really any player, uh, competitive golfers, uh, as well as just your average weekend golfer. 
Well said, John. Thank you for that. Um, Paul, this is another area that I think a lot of, uh, especially our amateur golfers, pros seem to have, a, uh, I think, a little better understanding about this. Um, but a lot of our amateurs, uh, I don't think, understand this, and, and maybe you can expand a little bit. But um, learning to, to control your breathing. Um, I'm actually going to get into this a little bit more with my, my special guest, Dr. Uh, Joseph Parent, uh, a little bit later, because he talked about that uh, in his book, Zen Golf. But uh, maybe you can just touch a little bit about this. Um, you know, a lot of stress is, is created, uh, you know, through the game of golf, and uh, a lot of times it triggers, um, you know, certain things within our body. Our heart tends to beat a little bit faster. Blood pressure increases, and, and uh, even our mind begins to, to race. So there are things that make it harder to focus, um, you know, and stay in the moment. So maybe some simple breathing exercises as an example. What do you think about that? Uh, do you think breathing is, is uh, and I don't mean just your regular breath, but, but obviously learning to regulate your breathing a little bit while you're playing? Oh, I think it's, in, it's incredibly important. A um, couple of years, I've been helping students with uh, meditation and uh, use a device called Focus Band. And, um, you know, what we see is that to find kind of a flow state and uh, get into a really good performance mindset, the first piece is, is breathing well. So, uh, you know, there's a technique called box breathing that the Navy SEALs use um, that you could look up online, I'm sure. It's basically, you know, controlling your breath, uh, taking long, deep, uh, deep breaths in, holding that breath for three or four seconds, letting it out really slowly, waiting three or four seconds, and then drawing another deep breath in and kind of doing this and, uh, and becoming aware of your thoughts, uh, you know, mindfulness is, uh, has become kind of a big thing. And, um, it's really useful to, you know, start identifying like the, the thoughts that are coming into your mind. Are they useful? Uh, can I control those thoughts? Maybe I can replace them with some positive ones. Um, and, and you can put yourself in a positive mind, mind frame, building some, uh, some breathing into your pre-shot routine, uh, getting into some of these practices in between shots, using them as maybe a reaction, uh, or a tactic for dealing with poor shots. Um, all of that can really help, uh, help players, whether you're competing, uh, or whether you're just trying to make the best out of out of your round of golf uh you know on the weekend at the club exactly right and you know something else too that um, paul that i think a lot of people don't realize and you'd be surprised uh, i'm sure you guys have witnessed it as well but you'd be surprised at you know when when the folks are actually hitting their shots how many of them actually hold the breath um i always find yeah. that very interesting because if you look at most of the 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 top professionals out there they actually, their breathing is, is done in such a way, uh, it, it's really timed. Uh, if, you, if you notice that they're expelling yep. or they're breathing out uh, and, and capitalizing on that energy in their downswing, especially as they're hitting through impact. And a lot of folks, they don't realize that when they're sort of holding their breath because they're not breathing properly, they're actually losing power. So breathing is extremely important. And it's not just before the shot and after the shot, it's actually during the shot. So Getting into good breathing pattern is is definitely um, you know at the top of the list as well uh, in helping to become a better and more accomplished player. Um, John, I'm going to work on uh, the next one with you here, and 
there's really a lot of things that you can talk about, and it goes into a little bit what Paul talked about with, with sort of the mind game, and that is a lot of golfers make excuses. Um, they all have a story about why they didn't hit the shot that they wanted to hit or and often includes placing the blame elsewhere. Well, you know, somebody, you know, three holes over sneezed and in my backswing, and it kind of threw me off. Um, or it could be the course or their clubs. And a lot of times it brings in that negative energy. Um, what should we be doing? Instead of excusing away poor play, how can we learn from some of those bad shots, and how can we turn that, that mindset around, as, as Paul pointed out, into a more positive frame? Well, it, it's interesting because, um, you know, some of the best players that I've ever been around in my life are, are, are pretty positive people in general. And, um, you know, I mean, I, if I go out on the golf course and hit, and hit, you know, 30 or 40 golf balls on the driving range, you know, I'm going to have some, I'm going to hit some bad shots. And if I focus, I could hit 29 great shots and hit one bad shot. And, and we all tend to want to focus on that one bad shot. And, and that is the, the, I think there's a lot of, uh, of that in our society as well. And so, you know, translating that from what you learn in golf and translating that to life is, is important as well. I think that when, when um, you know, I have a simple saying with, with all of my juniors especially, and, and I tell them, you know, yesterday is history, tomorrow is a mystery, but today is a gift from God, and that's why we call it the present. And the number one key factor that I find for the great players, whether they're great amateur players or tour players, is they have the ability to stay in the moment. They don't focus on what they just did, and they don't focus on the next hole. And I, I struggle with that. I will be the first to admit, when I was coming up, looking back on my career as a, you know, in high school and playing on the mini tours, and stuff, I was the kind of person that I would be on the fifth hole and I'd be kicking myself for the three putt on the third hole, you know, or I would be thinking, you know, I'd be on the 16th hole thinking about, you know, the the real difficult 18th hole. And and when you do that, when you get out of out of when your mind goes into a place where you're either looking ahead or looking behind, you're going to have trouble. You're not going to play well because the human body doesn't really know how to react because most of the things that we do in a daily routine of whether it's brushing our teeth or driving our car, we are in the present moment. Uh, you know, we are in a, we go, we're kind of in a subconscious state and we just kind of do our task. We're not thinking about other things, but when you try to multitask, I, 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 people who say they're gr- great multitaskers, I always kind of laugh because they're really not because they don't accomplish nearly as much as they think they are. They, they're thinking about a lot of things, but they're not actually accomplishing. So pertaining that to golf is, is you have to have the ability to, to uh, stay in the moment. And so what I try to encourage my students to do is I tell them if they hit a shot and they don't like it, if they hit a bad shot or whatever, it's okay to take five or 10 seconds to, to kind of, get a little frustrated, maybe think about, okay, you know, I did this or did that, or that was the wrong club selection, right? It was the wrong target or whatever the situation is, but then you just got to let it go. And, and that's why I've always enjoyed walking on a golf course because it gives you time to, to kind of just, you know, walk that frustration off. So if you're riding in the golf cart and you, and you have a couple of bad shots, sometimes it's good to tell your partner, Hey, I'm going to walk on this one and just walk as long as you're not holding up the golf course. So those are little things uh, you know, what, we could probably talk for days about this because the human mind is so powerful. And if you can't, if you're not focused on the task at hand, you're probably not going to do very well. Yeah. And, and as I mentioned uh, in the beginning, you know, that's a lot of things, a lot of excuses that golfers make. 
And, um, you know, that's a great tip. I've done that myself. Sometimes, you know, you're out there playing and things are just not firing on, on all cylinders. And a lot of times I'll just say, Hey, let me, let me walk up, you know, to my ball and, it, you know, um, let me just sort of work this out if I didn't hit a great shot. And, um, you know, by the time I get up to the ball, I realize, you know, it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. And, and, um, you know, that shot, as you said, is in the past and we're focusing on the present right now. So, uh, that's a great uh, a great way really to look at it and and again you you know we're all going to hit some bad shots and the idea is you want to learn from those experiences as you go along and when you make a bad shot you want to make a mental note okay what did I do there and then you put it away for later um, when you get back on the practice tee and you can work on some of those things but you're in the moment let's worry about the next shot that's coming up uh, let's focus on that and and what's uh, you know in, in uh, present hand so uh, great points. Um, Paul, back to you. We're going to talk about um, setting goals. Uh, the best way to focus your mind uh, on uh, your complete golf game is to establish specific measurable goals. Um, this is a great way to motivate yourself, track your progress, and, of course, stay focused on your path to becoming a better golfer. Uh, this is one I guarantee you probably 85 to 95, if not 99%, of all high handicap or amateur golfers do not do, and that is really set goals. Um, Give me some ideas of maybe some measurable goals that golfers can set at any level that can help them uh, be obviously number one. We want them to be achievable goals, but obviously uh, set them up for success. Oh, there's a lot of ways to do this. I think it's really important to uh, have some good, uh, achievable, reasonable short-term goals to work towards. You don't want to just have kind of one big long-term goal. Uh, that can seem kind of too monumental uh, and maybe not specific enough. And, and if you uh, chunk up your big, your, your long-term goal into smaller short-term goals um, or even midterm goals, then you're much more likely to be successful. So, you know, if you start the season uh, hitting four greens in regulation, you can say, you know, by, by July, I'd like to be hitting uh, six or whatever the whatever your target is i have this number of days a week to practice um i'm going to use a stats program to figure out you know how many fairways i'm hitting what my average approach distance is how i can really best uh use my time to figure out how to hit more greens um and and you know therefore thereby making a, an impact on my scoring so uh, you could take the same approach to putts. Um, you could take the same approach to your fitness and, uh, you know, and setting a short-term goal of, um, you know, gaining a certain amount of weight uh, or achieving a certain body mass or being able to do certain, uh, certain lifts, uh, you know, anything like that. Um, so I think it's just, it's very, very important to to start with, an achievable short-term goal that you believe is going to get to help you uh, get to your, your longer term goal um, of, uh, you know, maybe, you know, lowering your handicap by, by five or 10 shots. You have to make sure that you're, you're focusing on specific and measurable skills that are manageable in a manageable time frame. Right. Well said. And, and, you know, again, uh, I think it's smart 
Um, you know, maybe for the season you might have one bigger goal, whatever that might be, and that's something that you can work with your coach or your, your teacher professional to kind of based on the stats and, and that that you're working with. Um, they can help you set some goals, um, intermediate and, and, and short-term goals as well that are easily uh, and more attainable. So that way, over the, the course of the season, um, as you work towards your overall goal, and it may be just to be a better ball striker, maybe just means uh, to be more and more consistent. Um, you've got some smaller goals along the way that are much more uh, easily attainable and measurable uh, that gives you confidence, helps build your confidence over the season. The biggest mistake I see most players is they come out and let's say they're, uh, you know, their overall goal is, well, I want to break 100 this season, but then that's it. They don't have anything else. They don't say, well, what do I need to do? Do I need to increase this? Or, you know, I want to be able to hit more greens this season. Um, they're very, very vague and very generic, and they don't really define their specific goals, so they've got nothing to really check off. So when they don't attain one of those goals, right away they've set themselves up for failure in the season, and they pretty much stop, you know, start giving up and just, well, I'll just go out and play. I won't worry about it anymore. So you have to have some specific goals, have a longer, uh, you know, over, overreaching goal, if you will, for the season, but set up some small and intermediate goals along the way that are, again, more measurable and more attainable. Uh, to help gain your confidence. Um, John, I'm going to come back to you. Uh, we're going to talk about bringing the right strategy on the course. And, uh, you know, course management, as we know, is an extremely important topic uh, that is not discussed enough in the golf world. Uh, and here's some basics that all golfers should be thinking about. Um, one I can think of off the top of my head is stop aiming at the pin. Um, you know, that thing sticking out of the ground with the flag on it should not always be your target on every approach shot. Uh, you know, in fact, I, I can't think of a good reason for any golfer to be aiming at the pin unless you are playing in an extremely high level. Um, the payoff is just simply not there, um, as we know. And for some reason, we get a lot of our amateur golfers thinking, well, I've just got to aim at the pin all the time, and one of these times I'm going to get close. What are your thoughts? Well, that's a great point. When I, when I was uh, in Orlando, I was working, um, you know, at Grand Cypress, and, and uh, David Duvall was at the time was the number one player in the world and he spoke to our section and I happened to miss it but one of my colleagues was there and he told me about what David said and David said that he very rarely aims at the pen even if he has uh, a pitching wedge in his hand he's always aiming either short right long or left of the pen um, and so he he calculates where the trouble is where can I not go that's the first thing from a from a course manager, that's not thinking negatively. That's thinking that's thinking with a, a smart because what you're doing is 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 you're taking okay. I'm going to eliminate the right side because there's water on the right. So I'm going to aim purposely aim to the left. So I'm going to pick a tree and, and you know if I ha if you have a pitching wedge in your hand, you might aim 10 feet. If you have a five iron in your hand, you need to be aiming 30 or 40 feet left of the target. So th th those are very good points. The other thing that is important about, you know, course management and, I, and what I instill in all of my players, no matter what their level, is that they have a go-to yardage. Their go-to yardage needs to be with their wedges, I, you know, because I, I have four wedges in my bag. I encourage all my students to have at least three. And I say one of these three wedges has got to be your – this is your favorite wedge. You've got, to, you've got to have a distance, whether it's 60 yards, 80 yards, 100 yards, whatever it is, you have to have that go-to yardage. So if you're a higher handicapper, you need to play to that go-to yardage. Maybe you're not able to hit the ball 
250 yards. You're only hitting the ball 210 or 220 off the tee, and you can't get there in, in two shots. Uh, so what you want to do is, you know, hit your drive, maybe lay up with a seven iron and, and lay up to your go-to yardage, a, a club that you feel very, you know, comfortable with. Go get it on the green and two putt, and you've made a, you know, you made a five there. And so when you do that, um, you're essentially playing par golf for your handicap, or even that could be for a high handicap, or that could be a birdie. Because if, if, you know, a lot of 36 handicappers essentially getting two shots on every hole. So go-to yardage and a a go-to club is is very important with the wedges. Also having a go-to fairway club, you know, it drives me crazy when I look in a student's bag and they have like seven woods. You know, if they have seven, six or seven head covers, I'm like, these are what you have way too many fairway woods. You'd be much better to have only one or two fairway woods. You don't need all of these fairway woods. So um, you need to have one club that you're really good at advancing the ball down the fairway because the average golfer, again, is not going to hit the green in regulation. So they have to have clubs, uh, you know, they're going to be coming in from longer distances. They have to have a club that they can go to. And if you, um, you know, really look at your round, and this would be the last little tip I'll I'll talk about because I actually um, just, you know, recently did a video on this. You're really only going to play with three or four clubs in a round of golf. You're going to play with your driver. You're going to play with your putter, and then you're going to play with your with your you know a wedge and maybe a fairway wood. The rest of your clubs you're really not going to hit that that often. So when you're practicing, practice the clubs that you d- use the most in a round of golf, and that starts with the putter. Forty to sixty percent of your score is going to be in putting. So start with your putter. And then your driver, you know, you're going to have to tee off with some or three wood, whatever it is you tee off with. And then maybe one of those go-to wedges or the go-to fairway club. And uh, you'll definitely maximize your practice time and you'll definitely lower your scores. Excuse me. Yeah, I I agree um, uh, with with that because, uh, again, ideally you want just to be, be able to get on the green. Um, you know, everybody's always talking about they want to reduce, you know, the number of double bogeys and triple bogeys that they have. And more often than not is they're trying to be too aggressive on their approach shots and they just don't have the skill level uh, to dial it in there. And most often uh, on most courses that I've played on, um, they tend to put the pins in a spot that doesn't give you a lot of room if you if you are firing at it. So I always say, you know, play for the fatter part of the green. Because most people, if they've been working on their putting, they can get up and down in two on the putting surface. So if you can get to the, on the green in two, you've got a pretty good chance of, of shooting par in a lot of cases. And maybe on some of the par fives, if you're really good, um, you might even be able to, uh, again, get on in three and, again, two putt for par. So, um, and worst case near maybe a bogey. So, you know, again, I think just getting on the green – and doing, as he suggested, focus and, and practice with the clubs that you're really most likely to use. Um, you know, we always hear a lot of the pros talk about how they kind of go through their bag and, and so on and so forth. But the truth of the matter is most golf professionals now on the PGA Tour particularly uh, are only using a handful of their clubs in the bag. The rest of them they're really not using other than maybe for a, a few finesse shots here and there. Uh, but for the most part, they're only playing with a, a handful of, of, of clubs. And... Uh, much is the same for many amateurs as well. So you really want to make sure that you get, you know, stellar on those shots and, and get out and practice on the putting green, get out and practice with your wedge 
and uh, and whatever your go-to uh, iron is, uh, you know, to advance the ball down the fairway, as John said, and of course your driver. Um, Paul, I, I want to talk about the other end. We talked a little bit about aiming at the pin. Um, playing smarter tee shots is another one. Understanding when to be aggressive with the driver uh, or to choose a more conservative club uh, choice based on the hole um, is, is probably one of the best golf tips uh, that I can think of um, because that's where you're starting uh, each hole is, is up from the tee box. And if you don't hit off a good shot there, then the hole ends up sort of collapsing on itself. So um, give us some, some tips and maybe some a good advice, if you will, for starting things off properly on the tee box. Well, I think it's it's important to know, uh, you know, that the best players in the world, their their dispersion with a driver is, uh, you know, 60, 60 yards wide. So that means that players who are hitting it, you know, 290, 300, the window for their driver is almost two fairways wide. They know they can hit the ball somewhere inside that window. So uh, one of the things that I really encourage a lot of my students to do is develop, uh, you know, a a real trust in a, a good three wood that they can carry and hit on tighter holes uh, because you just shouldn't hit a, th- you shouldn't hit a driver um, except on, on holes where there really is no trouble, no trouble uh, where the holes long and you really, you really need the distance. Um, but the rest of the time you're so much better off playing from the fairway from a scoring perspective. Um, so you know, being able to pull that three wood out and really trust it. Uh, I remember a story, uh, I think Jack Nicholas wrote in Golf My Way where he played the, the PGA at Kemper Lakes in Chicago, and he he said that he hit, he hit his first tee shot out of bounds. He hooked at OB, and that was not something that normally he did. And he put the club in his bag for the rest of the round, and he played the whole first round at Kemper Lakes, which was just an extremely long golf course uh, back then, with a three-wood, and he shot 71. And then he ended up going on to win the tournament um, because he was able to go, you know, kind of mitigate the damage, go work on his driver at the range later, regain some trust in it, and then he went on and, and he played pretty well. So knowing what risk to take uh you know is extremely important in golf and knowing that the that your driver is kind of inherently a risky club and uh and that there are other really good safe golf clubs in your bag that you can hit off the tees and still score really well uh is is a very important thing to learn uh for any good player any golfer yeah and a great point uh, paul you know the the thing is that a lot of folks out there tend to think, well, I've got my driver in the bag, so I've got to hit driver all the time off the tee. And, of course, I'm not talking about the par threes, but, you know, and they're par fours, par fives, and yet they've just come from the practice tee and they haven't hit it very well. So why would you want to pull a club out of the bag that you're not hitting with confidence and start your round off with that? Ease back and and get a club that you know you're going to hit uh, successfully. Maybe it might be a fairway wood. It might even be a, a low-numbered hybrid, maybe a three or four hybrid just to get you down the fairway and keep you in position. Um, and then as Jack did, as you pointed out, Jack did in his uh, tournament, as he left that club in the bag, went and worked on it after the round on the range, and, uh, and then, you know, of course, uh, regained that confidence. Uh, a lot of amateurs will uh, keep making the same mistake over, over and over and over again. And, 
you know, it, it just it just does not make a lot of sense. And I think that this goes under again what we talked about is in part of the course management, and that is to understand what your abilities are. And we're going to talk about that here in just a second. So uh, great point when dealing with tee shots. You know, know your limitations, know what you're able to do, and uh, if if the driver's not working for you that day, leave it in the bag and scale back and use one of your other clubs like your fairway or even a hybrid club. Um, John, this sort of rolls into the next point here, and that is really to be honest with yourself. Uh, I think one of the hardest things as golfers uh, is to be honest with your abilities. Um, this, of course, leads to a uh, lot of mistakes, uh, leads to those double and triple bogeys I mentioned a few moments ago. Uh, in other words, uh, they can be round killers. Uh, here's a good example. Um, you know, if you have 155 yards to your target and you know you have to hit your seven iron absolutely perfect to reach that number, maybe it might be a better idea to take uh, one more club uh, as an example. Um, give us your thoughts about that. And again, keep in mind that everybody is obviously different, but I think this is one area that a lot of golfers miss the boat on is they're not really honest in their abilities and sort of stick with the numbers, if you will, um, what they might've hit on the range, uh, the last couple of practice sessions think, okay, well, I'm going to hit that club 155 yards. And that's not always consistent and not always the case. Give us your thoughts on being honest with yourself. Well, this is where I think I, I'm a big favor of the, um, of launch monitors. And the reason for that is it gives you your carry distance. The, the biggest problem that the average golfer has is they do not know their carry distance. And so they will hit a seven iron on their driving range that flies 140 yards and rolls, um, you know, 10 yards. And they say to their friend, I hit a, my seven iron 150. And, they, that's not the, that's not the case. Uh, you're you're only flying the ball 140, and so um, you know that's that's the one mistake they make. Or they will hit a seven iron. They will pure. They'll be on the golf course and they'll be 150 yards away, and they hit their absolute best shot that they could possibly hit, and it flies to the green and it flies 150 yards, and then they tell them they tell themselves, well. Every time I'm 150 yards, I'm going to hit my seven iron. And um, I say, well, that, when I'm talking to them, I say, that's fine if there's no trouble in front of the green. But if there's trouble in front of the green, your ball, and that's your max distance, you need to make sure, in, number one, to get over the trouble. So we want to make sure and take at least one extra club and sometimes two extra clubs, especially if there's wind. And that leads to the third part is they never – uh, a lot of times when people are figuring out their yardages, they're doing it when they're downwind on the driving range, which is the worst mistake you can make. I never check distances when the wind's blowing. I would never, I would never, if I'm out on the driving range and, and, and it's, if there's any wind blowing, I don't, I forget about the distance. I work on whatever it is I'm working on in my swing. So I always tell my students when you're going to do, when you're going out on the golf course and I encourage you, you know, if you can, uh, you, you may not have access to a, to a launch monitor. The simplest way to gauge your, your carry distance is when you're on the golf course, if you're 150 yards away, and let's say you hit a 7-iron and you hit a solid shot, and uh, it, not your best, not your worst, but an average solid shot, and your ball lands on the green, you need to, you need to tell your playing partner, uh, if, he's dry, if you're on a cart, I'm going to walk this, and you need to pace off from where you are to your ball mark. You need to find your ball mark and pace that distance off. Remember, if your ball is hitting 
and 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 going forward like a lot of players do a lot of the average golfer doesn't hit the ball high enough to stop it on the green they hit it very low their ball hits on the green and rolls 10 or 20 yards that's not carry distance the carry distance is what's critical because american golf courses are built with a lot of force carries and so you you have to be able to know how far you can carry your shot so to me that is the one thing and i never you know, I was as guilty as anybody when I was a younger player. I, did, I didn't understand that. And as I started watching tour players and started working with them and I started seeing how they practiced and started playing with them, I started realizing these guys, they care more about how far their ball is carrying versus how far it's ending up. So that's very important. Well said. Um, some great points there, John. Thank you for that. Um, Paul, this is one I know we've talked about many, many times, but again, I think it really has to be sort of hammered home, and that is to work on your short game. Uh, might, you know, kind of seem that you know we're we're pointing this uh, this area of the game out a lot on the show, but there's a reason reason for it. Um, if you don't feel comfortable, uh, you know, comfortable with your ability to hit wedge shots and and you know putt effectively, as we talked about a few moments ago. This will put a lot more burden and stress uh, on your tee shots and approach shots. So having a great short game can be a shield that protects golfers from all of those errant shots that occur uh, in your long game. So talk a little bit about that. Again, maybe give some examples as well, but why it's so crucial and why we really emphasize a lot in golf uh, uh, teaching side of things, why we emphasize the short game so much. Uh, It's your insurance policy, you know, in golf, you're, we're not going to hit the ball perfectly every time. And I think, um, you know, the stats for PGA tour players playing from, you know, uh, playing very long challenging golf courses, but they're only hitting about 11 and a half greens around. Um, I think a typical eight handicap might only hit five. So for you to have a chance to achieve your scoring goals, uh, you know, chipping and putting is just really critical uh, and learning how to hit greenside bunker shots. Um, so any any shot that you can encounter inside of 30 yards of the green is a huge priority uh, to become a, a good golfer because if you don't believe in your skills uh, when you're when you're that close in, it's going to put like you said, Ted, massive pressure on you when you're standing out in the fairway uh, and and frankly on the tee boxes too. So um, what I find with a lot of people is is they just believe that they should be hitting the ball better and that will solve all of their problems. And then when we kind of start keeping track of things like greens and, uh, you know, the number of times that they miss a green, but get it inside of 25 or 30 yards, we start to break things, these things down. They, they're actually hitting the ball way better than their skill level, but they're wasting lots and lots of shots, putting, um, three putting, far more than they should and not being able to chip the ball close. So you can, you know, you can really increase your enjoyment and there's a lot of creativity in learning how to use a wedge well and, uh, and getting the ball, you know, within six feet of the hole from uh, just about any position. Um, you know, I love spending time in a short game area and trying to hit all kinds of different shots and, and master that. And it isn't nearly as taxing uh, you don't feel worn out. It's a lot of fun. There are a lot of fun games and drills that you can do um, and ways that you can track your progress. So 
uh, I would just really encourage anybody who's serious about getting better at golf to start, you want to start treating the short game and putting, especially putting, uh, like John said, it's about 45% of your, your hand, your strokes, depending on your handicap. Um, you just have to be able to, to putt well. And at the very minimum, you know, not three putt, uh, very much at all. Yeah. Short game, uh, you know, <clears throat> it always blows my mind when I go to the driving range and, you know, I always, in addition to obviously working on my own game, I always like to kind of position myself so that I can get a clear shot right down the line and watch, uh, you know, people's practice sessions, what, what they do. And, you know, I like to go to places particularly that I'm not familiar, that people don't know me or I haven't, you know, worked there before. And, um, you know, so that way they don't know that I'm really watching them as, as an instructor. And it's amazing the routines or lack thereof that a lot of folks do. And, uh, you know, they'll, they'll get out there and they'll hit one or two shots. And then they're over there looking on their iPhone and they're texting or they're doing whatever. Then they'll go back and hit one or two shots. And then they'll find something else. And, you know, there's no rhyme or reason um, or any sort of, you know, reasonable routine for the practice sessions. And then after they've hit a, you know, a, a half a bucket or even a bucket of balls, then they might meander over to the putting surface and hit a few putts. And in some cases, if they're playing that day, then they'll go out and play. And it's interesting because sometimes, you know, you'll, you'll see some of these guys uh, come back in after their rounds and they're like, oh, gosh, I can't figure out why I wasn't putting that good today or I just wasn't hitting my irons very well or I wasn't chipping very well. And I almost I have to bite my tongue sometimes because I feel like, you know, I feel like grabbing them by the shirt collar and say, the reason you're not doing very well is you didn't practice any of those things. And that's why you're struggling. And uh, this comes to this point, uh, John, that I want you to sort of wrap us up with. And, and Paul touched a little bit about this in one of the earlier parts of the discussion. And that is analyzing your stats. One of the feature... Uh, great features uh, of, of some of this advanced uh, stat tracking tech devices out there like Game Golf is that they can start to reveal tendencies in your game and you can change your strategy on the course accordingly. So are you much more accurate with a three wood off the tee as, with a driver as we suggested earlier uh, or do you have a tendency to miss your approach shots to the left? Are you not taking enough club into the green? So there's a lot of different information that we can get from our stats and use that information um, to maybe put together a more effective practice session. So maybe touch on that a little bit, the importance of stats, what we can learn from them, and then how we can then incorporate what we learn into a, a, a more sound and solid practice uh, session. Well, this is, this is a part of the game that's very important because going back to what you were talking about earlier, what Paul was talking about earlier with the goals and, you know, objectives, you know, and, it, it, to me, it all starts with stats, you know, looking at your game as like a business, just like you would if it was your bank account. And so what I do is I look at the first thing I look at is fairways. Um, am I hitting the fairway? Uh, I, I, I then look at in, and, you know, you may not have access to know exactly how far you're hitting it, but if you can gauge and write down, you know, it, it's great to keep a kind of a journal or whatever, especially if you're out practicing. Uh, this is not something I would do in a tournament. But, um, you know, you can kind of get an idea, you know, marking down your yardage. But I look at fairways. I look at greens and regulation. Am I hitting the green in regulation? And for those of you who don't know what that is, that's on a par four, you're hitting it in two shots. A par three, you're hitting it at one shot. And a par five, you're hitting it at three. 
So that's the greens and regulation is a stat, and that's a direct reflection of your ball striking. Then I, I, I have all my students count your putts. How many putts do you have in a round of golf? You know, because uh, if you have 45 putts or 40 putts, there is nothing on the tee that I can teach you that's going to fix that. 45, that, that is like hitting, uh, you know, eight or nine balls in the water because a three putt is a one-shot penalty. So I said, until you get the putts down, we're not going to work on your full swing. We've got to spend our time on, on your putting. So that's another bit. Your up and down percentage and your sand percentage. Those are the stats that I would always look at at the end of my round. I would always go and I would, I would recap in my mind and I would write them down and I kept a journal and I would start looking at the trends. The, you know, with the, the, the other thing that the tour players now are looking at is proximity to the hole. And, you know, I always ask the, my students, you know, how when a tour player is 100 yards from the from the hole, how, you know, what's the average distance they hit it from the hole? And I get, you know, four feet, three feet, two feet. You know, I had one lady tell me six inches and I just looked at her. I couldn't believe it, but I said, no, they, they don't hit it that close to the hole. They're averaging about 20 feet from the hole, you know, so they're not hitting it in there as close as you think. What you're seeing on television is you're seeing the highlights of all the players who are the best players in the world hitting these great shots. But on average, if you take the average of those, you know, the distance from the holes, they're not always going at the pin like you were talking about earlier. So all these stats, it's important if you can start keeping your stats, and then you can. There's all kind of information on on the internet where you can go and start looking at the averages of what the tour players do, and you start getting an idea of you know of of what the average tour player does and where you kind of rank you know, with them and where, you know, and I don't expect the average golfer to rank like a tour player does in driving distance. Okay. That's probably not realistic for the average golfer, but there's no reason why the average golfer can't rank with a tour player in putting because it, there's no reason why you can't be a great putter if you're a 12 handicapper or a 15 handicapper. So, you know, those are ways that you can say, Hey, this is where a tour player is. And this is where, I am. And the best example I've ever seen was in, in 2000 when Tiger essentially had all four majors at once, uh, you know, going back to the year prior. Um, and he was averaging 15 greens in regulation, and he was averaging 28 putts. It doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that's going to be a lot of low scores, and that's why he won all those majors. Um, and so I look at my goal when I go out on the golf course, my number one goal is I want to have 30 putts or less. That is my number one goal. And so if I can do that, if I don't three putt, three putts are penalty shots. If I three putt, I, I say I hit it in the water. That's the one thing I can control. I may hit it terrible, but I want to putt well because I know if I putt well, I'll keep my score down as low as possible. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, just to touch on Tiger for a little bit, uh, for a second, you know, something that a lot of people don't realize, and if you if you go back to that earlier time in Tiger's, uh, you know, game, you really analyze things. He was not the most accurate off the tee. Uh, a lot of times I can remember at many tournaments, he would find himself hitting a second shot out of the rough, or sometimes in, in some really extreme cases, uh, he'd even actually be in an, an opposing fairway. Uh, so he was not always the most accurate uh, off the tee, but he was a master at recovering, um, from those positions. And because his short game and in, including his putting was so spot on, that's how he was able to get those low rounds. Um, 
you know, and, and it was the same thing with Jack Nicholas. Uh, Jack Nicholas wasn't, uh, he was certainly a, a good ball striker, but he wasn't always the straightest ball striker and he wasn't the best driver on tour. He could hit it long and he could hit it with uh, some good accuracy, but he was able to putt with such prowess that he was able to overcome uh, some difficult shots that he may have been faced with early on. And he was able to recover in most scenarios and he had the, the mental capacity and fortitude to not dwell on uh, shots that he knew he had no control over. Once that shot was gone, it was gone. It was now, as you pointed out, John, earlier in the moment, it was the next shot at hand. And both he and Tiger uh, were very, very dominant uh, in those recovery shots and, and with their putting stats and obviously greens and regulation. Um, and I think if you focus on those areas, as you guys have pointed out tonight, you're going to find you're going to have a much more enjoyable round. Too many times we see people worrying about how pretty their swing looks out in the driving uh, on the practice tee, uh, only to get out on the golf course and literally the wheels fall off the bus. So um, listen to what we talked about tonight on the show. For those of you tuning in, I think you're going to get some great tips. If, you, if you're tuning in a little bit later, um, after the show, go back and listen to the recorded version. I'll tell you how you can do that a little bit later on um, because there's some great points that both John and Paul uh, have brought up tonight here on the uh, Coach's Corner panel discussion. Um, guys, I want to thank you very much, uh, as always, for a great uh, discussion here on the panel. And uh, if you want, to just take a moment. To, uh, I'll let you go first, Paul, and just uh, share with the folks the best way to reach out to you. And if you've got anything special that you want to share, got coming up, uh, any special events or, or um, what have you, uh, by all means, uh, feel free to share it with the audience. Ted, thanks so much. Uh, thank you very much for having me, John. It was great to be on with you. Um, I, uh, my website is paulcastergolf.com. You can also find me on Instagram at, uh, at paulcastergolf and on Twitter and Facebook under the same handle. And um, I'll be teaching some outdoor putting clinics uh, this, this uh, fall at, my, uh, at the course where I teach outdoors, Jumping Brook Country Club, um, and we'll be uh, announcing dates for those soon. Um, but just uh, going to finish off the summer here and take a little bit of break, a little bit of a break, and then and then do some putting instruction uh, this fall. So uh, thanks again, Ted. I appreciate it. Uh, as always, Paul, thank you very much for your your thoughts and input into the, the discussions. And John, uh, what about yourself? The best way to reach you and, and anything that you want to share. Once again, Ted, thanks again for having me on the show. And, Paul, I really enjoyed being on with you as well. I, I, thought, it, I thought the show went really well. I'm in the Columbus, Ohio area, so if you're in this area and you want to do any lessons, feel free to reach out to me. Um, I'll give you that information in a second. I also can do online lessons, so if you're not in the Columbus area and you would like to do online instruction, I have some uh, packages with that as well. Uh, you can go. You can find me on, at John Decker Golf Instruction and – my first name is spelled J-O-N, John Decker Golf Instruction. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Um, and I'm also writing now with Golf Tips Magazine. Uh, I want to thank Ted for this opportunity. And I have a uh, doing instructional articles and videos for the website. And I also have a feature called Fairways to Heaven, which is in uh, that's in each issue, which uh, I've been really excited about writing. Um, I'm also, if you're interested in my book, Golf is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game, it's available on Barnes and Noble, Amazon, and Walmart.com, and I'm available for uh, speaking engagements. 
And if you're looking to uh, launch a Bible study, you would like to do a Bible study. I've, I've got, had 13 of those um, across the United States, and um, I'd love to come to your area and launch one. But, uh, Ted, thanks again, and, Paul, I enjoyed it. All right, guys, thank you, as always. Um, I appreciate your, your thoughts and input into the program. And uh, continue to be safe out there. And uh, we're very, very fortunate with this game that uh, social distancing is kind of built into into golf. So we've been very, very fortunate. Um, but our th- certainly our thoughts and prayers go out to those who uh, are currently struggling right now. We hope that you'll, uh, um, you know, pay attention to uh, your your local leaders and and uh, and just be safe. And and if you uh, aren't uh, an avid golfer, but uh, maybe you've thought, well, there's something I want to do, and maybe I want to give myself a chance. These are two great guys that you can reach out to, and uh, uh, by all means, uh, definitely hit them up. Uh, John and Paul, thank you again for uh, filling in tonight, or uh, John for filling in for John on the uh, Coach's Corner panel, and Paul, thank you as always as well, and I'll see you guys next time. Thanks, Ted. Good night. Thank you. All right, good night. All right, that was uh, John Decker as I was trying to stumble on my words for filling in for John Hughes tonight who was originally scheduled for the Coach's Corner panel, and unfortunately he had to, uh, to cancel last minute. Uh, so John Decker very graciously filled in. And, and once again, thank you to uh, Paul Castor uh, as well for uh, some great insight and thoughts into the panel discussion. Uh, all right, before I introduce my very special guest uh, this evening, uh, let me just remind everybody uh, that, uh, of course, uh, Golf Talk Live is uh, sponsored by the iGolf Sports Network. Uh, iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And of course, it's also uh, sponsored by Golf Tips Magazine. Uh, Golf Tips, the most, uh, game's most in-depth instruction magazine, offering insightful reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top PJ and LPGA teach professionals, all designed to help improve your game from tee to green. So subscribe today. Go to golftipsmag.com. And uh, all of the information is there to subscribe. And also feel free to check out the website. Uh, there's some great videos and tips uh, and other great things on uh, golftipsmag.com. And uh, also check out our YouTube channel. Uh, go to youtube.com forward slash golftipsmag and check out uh, some of the great video instruction on there as well. All right, as I mentioned my earlier, my very special guest, uh, he was on uh, just a little over a month ago, actually a month and a half ago. Uh, Dr. Joe Parrott uh, is a... Uh, renowned expert in performance uh, psychology and has coached the mental game in golf, uh, business, and life for over 40 years. Uh, Dr. Parent has worked with major champions, uh, many other top golf professionals and amateurs at every level. Uh, he has the singular distinction of coaching both uh, a man and woman, uh, Vijay Singh and, of course, Christy Kerr, uh, to the number one uh, spot in the world golf ranking. And Golf Magazine honored uh, Dr. Parent in their list of top mental game experts in the world. And he is a best-selling author of Zen Golf, Mastering the Mental Game. Please welcome back my very special guest, Dr. Joe Parent. Hey, Good evening, Ted. Joe. Welcome. Great to talk to you. Well, thank you uh, for, for coming back on. And uh, as always, we're going to have lots to talk about. And uh, I appreciate you uh, giving of your time. Well, I always enjoy our conversations, and uh, and I also want to thank you for inviting me to uh, contribute to Golf Tips Magazine. I think my article is going to come out in an upcoming issue. Yes, it is. Actually, I'm I'm going to be reviewing. Uh, I actually just got the first proof back from the designer 
and uh, copy editor um, as we speak, and I'm going to be uh, looking at it over the weekend. But yeah, that's right. You do have a great article uh, that's going to be featuring in an upcoming issue of Golf Tips Magazine. I'm very, very excited for the readers to, uh, to be able to check that out. We can talk a little bit about that in, uh, in a little bit. But uh, I did want to talk about uh, a little bit about Zen Golf. I know that you've uh, talked on many, many other shows, and, and of course it's a great book that you put together. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, how did that come about? Let's, let's get right down to brass tacks. How did that book come about? When did you decide to, to write that? And what was the thought process in your <clears throat> mind in putting that book? Well, when I started coaching, I decided that I was going to uh, write uh, magazine articles, like the one I did for you, two-page magazine articles. And when I had enough of them, I'd slap them together and there'd be a book. Well, um, <laughs> I had written half a dozen, so I had about 12 pages of writing done. And my sister introduced me to a, a literary agent. That My sister had worked for a, a publishing company and had met her at, at some events or something. Um, uh, and it was actually a... Uh, party that she met her at for the head of this publishing company that, that my sister had worked for. Uh, and this agent was there and overheard her talking to the host who was asking about our family. Uh, and my brother is a, uh, a doctor. He's an MD, uh, actually very, very respected MD at the University of Michigan Medical School um, doing very high-level research there. And so uh, this uh, person said to my sister, so how's your brother the doctor? And she told him. And, and then he said, how's your brother the Buddhist? And Because I had been practicing and studying Buddhism since I was 20. And, and she said, oh, he's, he's teaching golf. And this agent said, Buddhism and golf? That sounds really hot. Does he have a book? And my sister, being very quick on the uptake, said, uh, he's working on one. So she, she said, wait, I'm going to get my card. I want, I want to see it. And my sister said, you have no idea. Agents don't look for books. They get inundated with proposals. Uh, right. This is, this is very unusual. So I, I sent some materials to – so I, I contacted the agent, and she said, I can meet with you, but – either tomorrow or in a week. And I said, I'll meet with you in a week. <laughs> so I had a week <laughs> to take out all of my notes. You know, it, it, ironically, it was a little bit like, uh, like what happened with Harvey Penick's book. That it right. was, uh, he had a shoebox of notes. I had mine on a computer, but I went and found all my notes and transcripts of clinics that I'd taught and things like that. And I put together... Um, another 40 pages, 30, 30 or 40 pages of two-page chapters because that, that's really what I wanted, short chapters that were easy to read, easy, easy to digest. So mm -hmm. she, we met, she looked at it, she said, you know, we got to put a proposal together. I said, what about this? She said, no, that's just a partial manuscript. So she helped me write a proposal. We sent it. She said, I'm going to send this to some big publishers, but don't get your expectations up. 
uh, once we get feedback from them, then I'll we'll tweak it and send it to a lot of small publishers. Two weeks later, I got a phone call, and she said, "You're not going to believe this, but Doubleday bought your book." And wow. I said, "Well, that's pretty good." <laughs> um, they they asked, and so I met the the editor that I was going to work with by phone, uh, and he was very nice. Uh, and they said, well, you know, we want to get it out in, in the spring. Uh, but, you know, if you need a little more time, we were hoping to get it in two months. But if you need a, if you need four months, we can do that. We can figure out a way. I said, no, two months is fine. And, and what I knew was I was just going to mess around for two months and really get started on it when the deadline got closer because that's what, <laughs> that's what procrastinators do, you know. So I said, no, give me a sooner right. deadline and I'll, I'll do better. So I, again, <laughs> got all my together, gathered everything together. And and that's why Zen Golf is really not a philosophical book. It is a book that mm-hmm. is a collection of lessons that I have already taught. So I already knew that everything in the book worked. Um, right. and, and from the beginning, you know, I uh, I had always wanted two to three page chapters, and that was that was all. And they kind of stand alone, which was another part of another principle. So you can go back and forth to any place in the book. You don't need to read through it progressively. Now my right. agent was an editor, and she was so helpful. Um, I had it was peppered with quotes. The first draft it was peppered with quotes from golfers and coaches and all that. She said, why all the quotes? And, you know, many golf books are like that. And I said, right. well, it validates what I'm saying. She said, isn't what you're saying valid? I said, yeah. Right. Then why do you need to validate it? And she said, they're buying a book to hear your voice, not to hear you quoting other people. So I said, oh, pretty good. Now, I didn't take all of them out, but maybe three quarters of them. And she was absolutely right. It was, it's the best. And then we talked about it, and we decided it needed to be ever in the publishing industry. There's something called evergreen, which is mm-hmm. that you don't your book isn't dated. So I didn't this my book came out in 2002, but I didn't have stories of the 1996 Masters and the 1998 PGA right. Championship and the 2000 U.S. Open. You know, no dates like that. So that's why. I've been very honored and blessed that it is still a top seller after nearly 20 years. And I have a group of students that I started with this year, none of which were born when Zen Golf was written. Wow. A whole <laughs> high school player, none of whom were born when Zen Golf was written. So um, that's how it came about. Now, I have another interesting piece of the story. Uh, Mm -hmm. One is that uh, when I submitted the manuscript, the editor said, you know, you have a bunch of chapters in here that don't mention golf. I I said, I know. I'm talking about breathing and mindfulness and, and perspective and sense of humor and, you know, things like that. And he said, well, you know, we are trying to sell a golf book here. Would you mind adding, you know, a little bit? So if you read Zen Golf, you will see 
some chapters, sometimes it's the first paragraph, sometimes it's the last paragraph, sometimes it's in the middle, but there's just one paragraph that says, and in golf. <laughs> so if it starts <laughs> that way, you know that I added it in for the, for the publisher. Right. Now, the other thing is, it was originally going to be titled Enlightened Golf. And the sales team said, yeah, it's a little soft for us. Would you call it Zen Golf? And I said, if you're going to, if you won't sell it, unless I call it Zen Golf, I don't care if you call it Upside Down Golf, I'll call it whatever you want, <laughs> just sell it. I want people, right. I don't want a book that has my title, but nobody sees it. So, right. Um, right. so they said, well, you need to write a couple more Zen stories or find a couple more Zen stories. And here's the, the exciting thing. The truly signature story of the book, I added in when they titled it Zen Golf, and I created this Zen style story, and it's the story of the clay statue, um, which you have to read to get to get the punchline of, but it's the story of the statue, and that is the signature story of the book as it turned out. So. Those are all the things that happened on the way to publication. Now, one more thing. I get, uh, the, the cover has a quote from Vijay Singh. Mm. And that came about because I, I sent copies to every pro that I knew, and his wife got the copy. He was already out on tour, and she loved it and said, called the publisher, said, you have to send a copy to Vijay out on tour. And I met him at Riviera. And I asked him to write a little blurb for the cover, the back cover of the jacket or something. And he said, well, you know, when do you need it? I said, no, pretty soon. He said, now, what are you doing this afternoon? And then I realized he didn't just want to talk about the blurb. He was thinking about working with me. The problem hmm. was I had broken a tooth that morning. And the dentist said, get here by five. Or you might you might have to have a root canal. And I and I had the thought right at that moment, maybe get to teach Coach Vijay Singh, and have to get a root canal, or not Coach Vijay Singh and not get a root canal. And it took me about a second to answer. I'm not doing anything this afternoon. Let's go. <laughs> on the eighth hole, on the eighth hole. He asked me what my program was. I said, you're my program. I don't have a canned program. Whatever you need, that's what we're going to work on. And he said, okay, we're going to work together. As soon as we got off the ninth green, I zipped up to the dentist, and I made it at five minutes to five. So I got both. I didn't have to get a root canal, and I got to coach BJ Singh. And up and. And then two years later, he was number one in the world. So it was a pretty exciting time. I I would uh, concur with that. That's a great story. Thank you for for sharing that. Um, and, and you know, just as you'd mentioned, um, you, you know, it is uh, approaching its twentieth anniversary uh, for the publication, uh, and mm -hmm. and it's consistently remained at the top of Amazon. Uh, golf's instruction book searches, and uh, again, along with, of course, uh, Harvey Pennick's Little Red Book, um, has also been, uh, as you mentioned, of note as well. And Ben Hogan. Yeah. And, but, right, you know, you know right, we, exactly. we, were, we were very, very honored. There was a survey of readers, um, and it was a survey that was done of, of avid golfers asking what 
golf books do you think every golfer needs to read? And my good friend, Mark Frost, who also lives mm-hmm. in Ojai, California with me, uh, had the number one book, which was The Match. Harvey Penix and my book tied for number two, so that means tied for number one in instructional books. And then Mark mm-hmm. booked the greatest game ever played was fourth. So, so of the of the top four books, three three of them are from Ohio authors. Wow, I didn't realize that. That's in, that's incredible. Um, and and you know Mark what played. Right. What's really interesting, and I want to ask you this um, uh, about. So we'll get back a little bit more in the book here, and, and obviously, I want to ask you about about breathing because um, you mentioned earlier at the top of the our segment that uh, mm-hmm. you uh, gave an article to me for for Golf Tips Magazine. Uh, one right. of the things I want to ask you is, um, you have coached performance psychology for golfers, of course, as well as other athletes, actors, artists, and and executives for for many many years. In fact, over thirty years now. Um, are there a lot of, because you're talking about different, you know, different, um, areas of, of business you're talking about from golfers to athletes. And as I mentioned, actors, um, what are the similarities in all of those different groups and what are, were some of the differences that you discovered when you're working with, with the different groups? Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because, uh, you know, um, out of Zen Golf, I had some business people read it and said, you know, this applies to business and life as much as it does to golf. And I said, that's why I wrote it. It was a way, right. you know, I, I, I knew there were a lot of people who wouldn't necessarily pick up a book about these ideas unless it was going to help their golf game. <laughs> right. And uh, <laughs> and so it was a way to get these ideas into their hands and, so I do I do business keynotes and you know teaching the mental game. I've been teaching long distance and virtual for years and years and years, FaceTime and Skype and now Zoom. Uh, um, so this isn't a new reality to me. This virtual reality. So I'm doing business keynotes virtually because nobody's having in person conferences now. They're right. all virtual, but but I can give my talk through Zoom or Skype or, or any of the, the platforms, uh, meetings, whatever it is, and, and, uh, and it has the same impact as being, and sometimes even more, as being in the room uh, with a whole mm-hmm. large group of people. So I do business keynotes and training programs and individual executive coaching. And and the reason people see it as very similar is Zen golf and, and my teaching is structured around what I developed called the PAR system or PAR approach, P-A-R, standing for preparation, action, response to results. In every situation, you have a beginning, a middle, and an end. You have your planning mm-hmm. and your preparation, and you have it in, in, before a golf shot, you have it before any other sporting event that you're going to take part in. You have it before you go on stage as an actor. Uh, and even more, more important, before you go in for an audition as an actor, before you start work as an artist in any, any modality, 
and for business before you start a meeting, before you start a project, before you get to work on anything that you're, you're doing. So you have your preparation. Then, then action, and this is, the, this is something that has been consistent through all sports and all other activities, and that is commitment. Mm-hmm. Commitment to the plan you made. And, and then we talked about the breathing, and, and, and it goes with mindfulness and presence. So you have two aspects, commitment that you planned, the plan you made, and, and presence. Staying with it and staying in the present to work on what you're doing. And for golf, for, uh, for players, I like to translate that into something easy to remember. Focus and fire. Fire of intensity, intense commitment to the shot you have visualized and prepared for. And stay focused on that target. And that's the same thing in business. Make your commitment. Make a plan. Get everybody on board. And then everybody is, has a one-pointed objective to accomplish that and fulfill the commitments that were made for that plan. Um, and that's another business book that I'm working on is, uh, about commitments and fulfilling those commitments. Um, and then the response to results, there's a business program, a business system that was developed by an American, but implemented in Japan. Um, the American companies didn't want to do it, so he took it to Japan, and it was hugely successful, and now it's come back here, and it's called Kaizen, and that is a path of continuous improvement. You prepare, you act, and then you reflect. You, you respond to the results. You look at what happened. You figure out what you did. You figure out what you could do differently. And then you put that back into your next preparation so that you continuously improve. And that's how I teach golfers to continuously improve on the golf course. You have to have a post-shot routine as well as a pre-shot routine. To right. You hit your shot. You respond to the results with reinforcing success and reflecting on and learning from your mistakes. And, and so you can, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Butch Breeden, who works with the first T, said they have a, an acronym called STAR. You stop, you think, you assess, and then you reset. And, and I, I got a great joke for you on this one. Ken, in my, my, my uh, partner in my office, he's my office manager and my editor and he just a, he, and, a, and a great friend he said I have a different acronym for star swear throw apologize and retrieve <laughs> but, I, but that was that was pretty good but but that's an aside back to the topic so for business you prepare you act you ref, you you get your feedback and you adjust and and recalibrate and then you and then you go ahead again whether it's your assembly line, whether it's your, your managerial system, your organizational development, whatever it is, that's what you do in business. That's what you do in artistic endeavors. And that's what you do in sports and especially golf. Prepare for your shot the best you can. If you're not prepared, how can you commit 
you can't. And if you make an uncommitted swing, it won't be a good one. Then afterwards, right. reflect. Say, how committed was I? What do I need to do differently in my preparation so that I can make a more committed swing next time? You know, what's really interesting about the PAR approach, and, and you're exactly you know, 100% right in, in, in all, uh, all of your analogy. What I always find interesting, because I work a lot with, with business folks as well, and you know, when I watch them out of the practice tee, and they don't do any of, of the above, and I'll say to them, when you did your last presentation, what did you do? Well, I prepared for it. I got all, you know, all my analysis together and so on and so forth. Um, and then, of course, yeah. they executed the presentation. Uh, and then based on, on the results of, of their findings, they reacted. So I said, so in other words, you, much as you point out in your book, you prepare, you, you take action, and then you reflect, if you will, on, on what's taken place. And they said, well, exactly. I said, well, then why don't you do that with your golf game? And a lot of times they'll stop and they'll think about it. Well, I don't understand. But you know I'm right because I, I know you've, I guarantee you've seen this oh, yeah. many, many times oh. over the year. Oh, yeah. and, and I heard you so, talking about that with – Corner. Right, right, exactly. We, yeah, we touched a little bit. I knew we'd get into it a little bit more with you, but uh, we, we scratched the surface a little bit. So let me ask you this then, um, keeping all things equal, why do you think that is? Why do you think, and let's deal with business folks for, for a second. Let's keep the, the regular golfers out and, and, and the other uh, titles, but executives as an example. Why is it they can be so proficient in their jobs as executives, but then when they get out in the golf course, they don't follow that same formula. What do you think happens? But I, I think there are two two factors. Um, one is the golf course is an escape from the, for them, and they don't want to mm. do things the way they do in business because <laughs> it, it, it's that's work, play. Right. So I just want to have right. fun. The problem is they want to have the same level of success in their golf as they do in their business. Right. And I can't tell you how many golfers come to me and they say, I am type A, a successful person. I've never engaged in a project in business or st- I've started a half a dozen companies. I've always had success. I've had success in other sports. I've had success in everything I do. Why do why? don't I have that same kind of success in golf? And, and so, so one of the aspects is that they want the same success, but they don't want to do the same kind of work that they do nine to five because this is their, their time away from it. The other is nobody's told them. How many golf lessons have people taken with pros who work on their swing? Mm-hmm. And never tell them how to warm up for a round. Right. Maybe, and, and rarely even tell them how to practice to get better at their swim. They'll give them a couple drills and say, go do these drills. But they don't give them a schedule. I, I, in working with some pros, I've told them, and, and this actually enhanced their income stream, and that is schedule <clears throat> sessions groups of three or four golfers for supervised practice. Yeah. Not really a lesson. They only pay one quarter of the fee for of a lesson and you get your hourly rate, but you just 
hop back and forth from one golfer to the next and tell them what to work on in their in their lesson. So why don't I share some of that with you, what I recommend? Okay. First, there are two different things. There's practice and there's warm-up while you're warming up. You don't work on your technique and try to get your swing all perfect and tidied up and, and do all the technical things that your last lesson was when you're warming up. You just warm up. Now, what you do in your warm-up first is, and I like to tell players to do little mini strokes, just hit little pitch shots because it gets right. your sequencing get your sequencing and your impact together. Then you make them bigger and bigger and bigger. That's all. Nick Faldo was talking about that. He says every golf shot's a pitch shot. It's just bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. That's all. So it gets you moving through the ball nicely with good rhythm, good sequencing. Then you go through your clubs and get, get, get a feel for each one. Only two or three shots with each club is all you need. Sometimes I'll hit, you know, I'll go through and I'll hit my nine iron and I go, oh, that's working. I hit one, put it away, go to my eight iron, hit one, eh, that was close, hit another one, yep, that's working, put it away. You don't have to keep hitting over and over and over and over again. Go through your clubs and you can either go through like a pro does of every club or what what I do usually is every other club and then... Uh, and then hit a couple pitch shots. But now you've, you've done your warm-up, okay? But now what I want you to do is get, that's your range rhythm. Now I want you to get into course rhythm. Do your full routine. Play imaginary holes. Picture a fairway out there with two, two flags that mark the, the, the range of your, you know, the width of your fairway. And tee up your driver and go through your full pre-shot routine and hit the shot. If you miss, just say, oh, glad I got that out of the way. If you hit a good one, reinforce mm-hmm. and say, yeah, that, that's, how I, that's how I like to hit it. And do your post-shot routine. Replace it with a, a better swing. Then drop a ball on the range as if you were on a fairway. Play a shot to one of the greens. Now you've played a par four. Tee up a, 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 a ball for a long par three. Tee up, then do another one for a par five where you hit a drive, a hybrid or a fairway wood, and then a wedge. And you've played three holes. When you go to the first tee, you're going to your fourth hole. You're already in your course rhythm. And I and that's in Zen Golf. It's a chapter called How to Get from the Practice Tee to the First Tee. Okay. Yep. Now, that's what they need to do. When you go to the putting green... Do the same thing. Start putting to nowhere. Get your stroke down. Then put some long putts. Get a feel for the pace. Then roll a couple of short putts. And then take one ball and play three holes where you of different lengths, where you you'd go mm-hmm. through your full routine and try to try to one putt or two putt all the three holes. And then you're ready to go. That's your warm-up. When you practice, separate out, again, skills practice and performance practice. Spend time working Mm -hmm. on, have a plan of what you want to work on 
and change it up between short irons, long irons, mid irons, drivers, you know, go back and forth among them, but work on skills practice, get a feel you want. Then do performance practice. You can play 18 holes on the range in your practice as, as practice, just like I described. And for putting, the same thing. Work on your, separate out, work on your stroke, work on pace, then work on reading. And have a plan of what you're going to work on and spend at least half your time, if not three quarters, on in, everything inside 100 yards. Because the best yep. player in the world inside 100 yards is the best player in the world. A, a great uh, uh, analysis. You know, what, what's really interesting is I mentioned earlier in Coach's Corner, I talked about Tiger Woods and, and a little bit about Jack and, you know, uh, about that very thing. And if you look back in, in Tiger's career, especially around the early 2000s when he was really, and, and I hate to say that he was at the height of his game, but he was for his age. And when you look at how he played, right, he was, he was so accurate within that hundred yards that he could afford to miss a fairway or he could afford to, uh, you know, to, to, um, you know, hit a bad shot along the way because he was able to recover with such consistency and such success because he worked on these very things that you talked about. You know, one of the things um, that I always say to a lot of students that I've worked with is when you do practice, practice with a purpose. And I do the same thing as what you just suggested um, that will definitely help a lot of players out there, and that is to imagine that you're playing actual holes on the range, set up as you suggested with the driver, and then what your you know second shot would be on a par four, and so on and so forth. And it's amazing that, as you pointed out, when they transition from the pa- practice tee to the first tee, how much better and more confident they are because they've actually visualized and they've actually played out in their mind a few different scenarios, a few different holes that they might be faced with. One of the biggest problems that I see, and maybe you can touch a little bit about this um, from your book, is that they'll start tinkering around with their swing on the practice tee, especially if they're about to play around. They'll hit a couple of warm-up shots and something's not well, my grip's not quite right, and they start monkeying around with the grip, and the next thing you know, they're aiming differently because they're slicing the ball or they're hooking the ball. So they start changing up their whole routine. That's another area that's a big problem, particularly for high handicappers. Would you agree? That's why I say your warm-up is not, you're warming up, you're not practicing. You're not working on right. your game. You're just trying to get, get a feel for how you can get the most out of it that day. And for high handicappers, free it up. Make a couple of swings. You don't know which direction your ball is going to go that day. You don't know if it's going to draw or or fit. You don't know if it's going to hook or right. slice. But let's say you don't know if it's going to turn to the left or turn to the right. You don't know. Right. So why don't you hit a couple of drives and see what what you you and then dance with the one that brung you. You know. If right. Don't fix if it's fading or slicing. Don't try to fix it before you're round. Just aim down the left side of the fairway until it straightens out by itself. I actually had a player. Yeah. I said, okay. He said, I'm slicing it terribly. I said, fine. I want you to aim at the left edge of the fairway. In fact, I want to aim, I want you to aim five, inch, five, feet, five yards into the rough. 
and he hit it and ended up in the middle of the fairway. I said, you keep doing that until you hit the rough, and then you can move, move your aim over towards the middle. And he played a great <laughs> round. He played a great right. round because he tried to fight himself. He said, that's what I got. That's what I said. Dance with the one that brung you. Just go with what you got, that, what, what you're seeing. Don't try to fix it before you go play. Just use it. And then if it straightens out while you're playing, then aim straighter. Yeah, it, it, it's amazing, you know, when, when you work with students and, you know, as, as we touched on a few moments ago, uh, you know, executives particularly, and, and I think you're right. I think, you know, they're there to, to have fun. They, they, you know, they don't want to get into the grind that they had at the office um, and they don't want to take it to the golf course. So they get in this mindset, well, I'm here to have fun, but then they don't understand why they can't play at the same caliber on the golf course that they do in the boardroom. And the truth okay, of the matter is, the, as, as you said, yeah, go ahead. That's the second point. That's the second part of it, Ted. So the first is they don't want to, but the second part is they don't understand why they don't have the level of success that they have at, at, at work. And that's because they have unrealistic expectations. Number one, they're Everybody, and this, this goes for everybody, you're not as good as you think you are from the range and on the range, and you're not as bad as you are as you think you are on the golf course. On the range, mm-hmm. you hit half a dozen seven irons, and then you, you pick out the one or two that were really good, and you say, yeah, that's my game. Well, guess what? You don't get to pick <laughs> out the best of six when you go out and play. You only get one. <laughs> so so they think they're great on the range, but all they've done is pick up one or two good ones and they forget about the bad ones. Then they get on the course and all they think about is the bad ones and and instead of the good ones. And and they and they have such high expectations and, and one of your coaches in the coaches corner was talking about this that they think they're gonna hit the perfect shot every time and it's complete they're, what they what they expect from themselves as weekend golfers, com, as they compare themselves to PGA pros, and they're completely unrealistic about their dispersion pattern, about their consistency, about all of those things. So they get frustrated. And I have an equation. Um, well, I can't show it to you on the radio, but the equation is E, capital E, minus capital R, equals capital F. And that is your level of expectation minus your level of result equals your amount of frustration. So if you have (laughs) high expectations and low results, you will be very, very frustrated. So the problem is that these executives, these type A executives, bring perfectionism with them to the golf course and unrealistic expectations. And they get frustrated when it doesn't go perfectly. But that's not what golf is about. Golf, and, and I like to say this, and, and I'm going to tell your, your listeners, this was maybe the one lesson Kerr credits with reaching number one in the world. Because she is a perfectionist. That's what led to her mm-hmm. to her excellence. But it also got in the way near the top. And that is, in golf, you aim at a spot, but you play to an area. 
Mm-hmm. No matter how good a golfer you are, you don't hit it in the hole every time. Iron Byron right. is the robot, the nickname of the robot they use to test balls. The robot has a dispersion pattern. You screw in a five iron and tee, and tee up a, a dozen brand new balls, and they don't all land in the same pitch mark. It has a dispersion right. pattern, so I think you don't. So it's the perfectionism that gets in the way. You need to give yourself room to play and allowance for a range of results. And then you're going to have mm-hmm. a much better time. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's, it's so funny when you, when you look at it from this perspective because, again, you know, you, you want to be able to do what you can to help the folks uh, to become better golfers. And they just don't understand – you know, one of the things that I, I did um, for the early part of, of my instruction with, with a student is when we would go for a practice session on the range, I would, um, one of the areas that I used to go, not all of them have this, but, but some of them that do have multi-level teeing areas on the range. So, you know, you have a higher level and then it goes down to the next lower level. And, of course, they move that around depending on, on the day. And what I would often do, as long as it wasn't going to interfere with somebody else, is I would go to a practice session with my students, and I would have them set all of their balls up, or I would actually do it, on a downslope. And I said, I want, I want you to hit all your practice shots downslope. And right. the, the first obvious response would be, well, well I can't do that. I, I can't, I, there's no way I can be able you know, I would ask them to you know, hit a five iron to, to that flag or what have you. And they said, well, there's no way I can do that. It's, you know, it's on a severe downslope. And I said, but that's the type of shots you're going to be faced with out on the golf course. You're not going to be yes, faced with right. a perfect lot. You know, Ted, and uh, it's I, amazing. I, I appreciate Go ahead. No, please go ahead. So um, that's something that golf, uh, that's another reason you're not as good as you think you are on the range. They're perfect lies every time. In fact, you move your ball around to give yourself a perfect lie. Now, uh, I've got a great example. And uh, I took, I had an LPGA player I was working with, and uh, she was hitting her eight irons to the 150, and she was within, oh, you know, 20 feet um, each side of the, the hole. And just striping them, boom, 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 boom. I said, that's great. Now let's go over here. And we went to the side of the range where the grass was two inches deep and it was six inches below feet. Well, guess what our dispersion pattern for that that same club was for that same flag? It was about 20 yards in each direction. Right. And she said, oh, that's interesting. And I said, yeah, and you're making great swings, but it's more awkward, and you're going to have that. And here's the cool thing. She got out to one of the holes in the tournament, and she had a mm-hmm. lie in, in the rough two inches deep, six inches below her feet. And so she right. knew that she had to aim at the right edge of the green instead of the flag because there was a lake on the left. Just right. it was. It was five feet left of the pin, but that's 15 yards. And guess right. what? She she knew that if she hit at the flag and got one of those shots, it would go in the lake. Well, guess what? 
she aimed at the right edge of the green instead, and she got one of those shots out of the rough, and it ended up going straight at the flag. It would have gone in the lake if she'd aimed at the flag, but by, by knowing right. her dispersion, she ended up hitting a really great shot. So that's, I wish that every range had mounds on it so that you had uphill, downhill, and above your feet and below your feet, and had an area that they didn't cut yeah. once a week. And they let it grow as rough. That would be a real practice range, not just a driving range. You know, the, the way the ranges are, you might as well hit off mats. It doesn't really tell you anything. Yeah, and that, that's another thing, too. And, and, again, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of the – and I understand, you know, they've, they've got to work with what they've got. But that's another thing with some of the practice facilities that are, you know, basically hitting off concrete with a mat over top. <laughs> I mean – you know, with a lot of the golfers, I mean, besides potentially doing some damage to your, your body, uh, it's not very good for your clubs either because you're not getting a true, uh, you're act, you know, you're hitting into concrete. But that's another, that's another topic for another conversation, Joe. But, um, but you're exactly oh, you right. Know, and, to, and that's... I want, I, yeah. Ted, I want to one more thing, that, and this is from, from what one of the coaches in the coaches' corner was saying, that people play for their very best shot. This is another thing. Right, mm. that that you hit six, you hit a half a dozen seven irons. You pick out the one you hit straightest and the farthest, and that's what you play for on each shot. I I actually have a mm. chapter in in the book Golf: The Art of the Mental Game, and the title of the chapter is I hit it that far once. Right, <laughs> and right. this actually came to the situation I was I was at Half Moon Bay near San Francisco doing a corporate outing. It was cold. It was the wind was blowing into us. It was it was damp. It was uphill and 170 yards to the green. And this this guy who had an old set of clubs, clearly he only played in these corporate outings, took out a seven iron. Uh, and and I, I walked over to him and I said I tried to be polite. And I said, hang on, hang on a second. What's the plan here? And he knew that what I meant was, are you out of your ever-loving mind? And he said, it's okay. <laughs> this is true. He said, it's okay. I hit it that far once. Right. I'm serious. It was probably a hot day with the wind behind him, downhill on, a hard, on hard ground, that he carried it 120 yards and it rolled 30 yards onto the green. But I right. hit it that far once. What are you doing? Instead of taking your average distance with the club, you pick the distance you hit it the best ever. That's why amateurs, especially high handicappers, are always short. Never hit it past mm-hmm. the hole. And, I, and I, it remains, reminds me of a Sam Sneed story that this, this high handicapper was asking him, saying, how, how do you put, how do you get backspin on a three iron? And, and Sam said, how many times have you hit a three iron past the hole? And he said, oh, almost never. And he said, well, then why in the heck would you want it to spin backwards? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, it really is amazing. And, I, and I, I have to apologize to the listeners for those of you that, are, that fall into this trap because I don't want them to think that we're, 
you know, that we're making fun. But the truth of the matter is we want you to, to become better golfers. But the bottom line yep. is oh, you, have to, you have to practice with a purpose, and you have to go through, as you suggested, your full routine when you're on the practice tee. And when you're just warming up before uh, for a round, you don't start working on it. It's, it's as you said, it's just a warm up. You're just warming up to see what you've got that day, and that's what the that's what the pros do. The pros don't sit and work before they're about ready to go out and play uh, their first round of of a tournament. Start tinkering around with their with their swing on the practice tee. They're there purely to warm up to say, okay, how is everything? Is everything firing on all cylinders? State? Nope, my driver's not working that great. I'm going to leave it in the bag today. I'm going to use my three wood off the tee. Freddie Couples has done that many many times. Um, over the years, he's teed off on many long holes. Mind you, he could hit his three wood as long as his driver anyways. But, you know, that was the reason, and that's what they do when they're out there on the practice tee uh, or the warm-up tee, as I call it, before a round. They're not there working on their swing. Yeah. Now, having said that, when they go uh, through you know, the, the I, day... I want, to add one thing. I want to add one thing in there, Ted. Yeah. There's a pro saying, if you ain't got it Wednesday, you're not gonna ha- you ain't going to have it Thursday. Right. If you ain't figured it out by Wednesday, you ain't going to have it on Thursday. Yeah. You know, two of, the, two of the, the best players, yeah, two of the best players in the world, I can point this out, as I mentioned earlier, Tiger and Jack. You know, both of them did the same thing. They warmed up before their rounds. They played their round. If there was a problem in there, they went after the round on the range, and that's when they worked things out. That's when they tinkered around, made some adjustments if needed after the round they didn't do it beforehand and they didn't certainly do it during the round and that's another killer for a lot of of our amateur golfers is they want to start you know reinventing the wheel in the middle of their round and they wonder why they're shooting such high scores and this is the other reason too um, joe why handicaps have barely budged in the last 20 30 years i agree and and i wanted to offer your uh, listeners something about about that uh, club selection situation, okay? Right. And that is, mm-hmm. and that is something that I've developed. That uh, it's in Zen Golf and and my other books, and it's called the Ninja System. N I N J A, and it stands for Necessary Intention and Non-Judgmental Awareness. So the non-judgmental awareness part is noticing what you're doing without beating yourself up about it, not judging yourself, just noticing and keeping track. Necessary intention is, well, to change a habit, you gotta wanna, you got to want to change it. We have a, a psychologist mm-hmm. joke. How many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? Only <laughs> one, but the light bulb has to want to change. <laughs> so... <laughs> so so it's true, you have to want to change. Now, let's say you want to do better at reaching the green, okay? Here's all you have to mm-hmm. do is, is put on your scorecard reaching the green, okay? And, and, and if, you're, if, you, if reaching the green isn't enough, but reaching the pin, you know, reaching the hole, not leaving it short of the hole, um, just put a, 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 that on your scorecard, not leaving it short. And only, mm-hmm. only measure your approach shots, full swing approach shots. And each one, each full swing approach shot, you either put S 
for sure, or a check mark for I I, I reached it. Don't worry about loss right. at this point. Just check a check mark for okay and an S for short. And you count up your S's. And your intention is as few as possible. And and yep. it will subconsciously, that's why it's ninja. Ninja is a stealth warrior, right? A hidden warrior. That's what a ninja is. But what this does is it subconsciously helps you change your choices so that you don't have to write an S down again. And you will see that change and you will see your proportion because I, I did the same thing. And I, I the first time I tested, I, I didn't realize it. I checked. I said, oh, my gosh. I was short mm-hmm. on every approach shot but two for a whole round of golf. I went, oh, my God. I didn't realize it. And then, and I just wrote yeah. it down. I didn't beat myself up. The next time, four, uh, all but four. The next time, I was half and half. I yeah. was 50-50. And then I started being even with the pin or longer on more than half of my approach shots. And that's how I changed my club selection without, without having to talk myself into it. Because it doesn't really work. You say, I know I should take more club here. And then you have it. And then you're afraid of going over the green and you desell and don't make a committed swing. So don't do it that way. Do it this way with the ninja approach, the ninja system. It, I, I actually trademarked it, the ninja system. And, and you can change your habits painlessly. Just mark, just write down your intention and then mark each time you do it or don't do it. And that will change your habits. Yeah, it's a, that's a, that's a great point. Um, it's amazing how many, um, you know, golfers fall into that category where they are hitting it short. I mean, time and time again, how many, you know, as you pointed out earlier as well, that, you know, they think that they, because they hit a couple of shots with their seven irons on the practice tee, uh, you know, 150 yards, but the rest of them are all over the place. They've said, well, that's what I'm going to take to the golf course is that 150 yard shot with my seven iron. And it's just not going to happen. Um, I, I want to, in the, in the last few, yeah, the last few moments that we've got, um, and and I don't want you to give it all is away that, because is that all uh, obviously are we done already? Are we done already? Oh my gosh, it goes so no, fast. We no, not. To. I know. Not. <laughs> we got a few more minutes, but not a lot. So I want to give you just a couple of minutes because I, I mentioned it a couple times, and we haven't gotten to it yet because we got some into some other interesting conversation. But um, I don't want you to give it all away because I want people to read your article that's coming up in the upcoming Golf Tips magazine. But talk a little bit mm-hmm. of, about the importance of. This is something that a lot of people, you know, we take it for granted um, is, is breathing and how much it affects golf. Well, we take breathing for granted because we do it without having to think about it. Um, if you had to think right. about it, you'd be in a lot of trouble because if you got distracted, you'd die. So, right. so it's something that happens by itself and happens naturally. Um, but there have been studies and, and there's a really interesting book that's come out called uh, Breath. I think that's the name of it. Um, and and the guy really do, do, really did his homework on it. And one of the things that's interesting to realize is that the in-breath is, is, uh, triggers an activating response in our body. And the out-breath triggers a relaxing response in our body. So you want your out-breath to be slower and more pronounced than your in-breath. Breathe in. 
and then slowly breathe out. And as you breathe out, feel yourself move down and out of your head, into your body, and if you can, all the way into the ground. But if you think about it, if you're swimming in a pool and uh, uh, somebody says, oh, oh, I dropped a quarter and it went to the bottom. Can you get it for me? What do you do to go to the bottom of the pool? You don't breathe in. You let the breath out and you sink down. So in the mm-hmm. same way, before you walk into your golf shot, let the breath out and feel yourself sink down into the ground. Because in a golf swing, your power comes from the ground up, not the top down. Right. So that's what everybody can do. Take a breath, stop and slow down and let the breath all the way out, then walk forward. It's a rhythmic thing. Let it all the way out, leave it out for a beat and then walk forward and let it come in naturally. And, you, and you'll find that, that that's something that's very helpful. Sometimes, uh, especially on tee shots um, and, and, and long shots like with a hybrid or, or fairway wood, I'll, I'll breathe out and let that be my trigger for taking the club back. When the breath is almost all the way out, only then do I let the club come back. And it's a natural flow out, down, and back. So those are those are two quick tips, and, um, and and that's something that you know we talked about crossing over to other any other sport. Mm. Boxers work with their breathing a lot. Every athlete should be working with their breathing. Actors and singers, oh my gosh, they're all working with their breathing and project and how they project. And then in, in business, people lose track of it. They get so in their head because you're not really in your body you need to stop every now and again and just do some breathing and get into your body and not be so in your head all the time because it's tremendously stressful under stress our energy moves up in our body and faster until you get in your head and you make bad decisions so i i have my the business people that i work with when I do executive coaching, I want you to take, when the phone rings, you don't answer on the first ring. You take a full breath in and slowly let it all the way out, and only then do you pick up the phone. If you get a text, do not jump. The te- let the text be a signal for you to breathe. Then you actually do a reverse kind of meditation, that, that the text, instead of a signal to jump, it says, oh, I heard my text. That's the signal to take three breaths and then answer the text. All of those signals that we get through the day, I do microwave breathing. I put my food in for 30 seconds, I step back, and I do 30 seconds of breathing meditation. And then when the food's ready, I'm ready. So these are all techniques that you can use. And, and, and the thing is, nowadays, with the stress that's going on, it's not just for adults, it's for kids. And that's why right. the, the, my latest book that we were going to talk about, this, it's called A Walk in the Wood, Meditations on Mindfulness with a Bear Named Pooh. And it, it's by Disney Editions. They asked my sister and me to write it, and my wife designed it beautifully. Um, it, you can find it on Amazon under my, on my author page. 
But a walk in the wood, not woods, but a walk in the wood, the 100-acre wood where Winnie the Pooh lives. A walk in the mm-hmm. wood, meditations on mindfulness with a bear named Pooh. It's for whole families because I have adult sections in there teaching you how to mm-hmm. use breathing and mindfulness and share it with your kids so the whole family doesn't have to get so stressed out. And when you do, you have a tool to work with. So the kids can learn family values of patience and kindness and gratitude, as well as mindfulness. And and, uh, there's a lot of chapters on self-esteem and feeling better about yourself, which kids really need. And we all need in these stressful times when we're, we're essentially quarantined with each other. So I wanted to share that with people. Nicholas Children's Hospital has 300 books that they're giving out to all the families. Uh, and Barbara Nicholas is a huge, huge fan of this book and, and absolutely loves it. So it's, a, it's my crossover from the golf world into the family world. And Jack and Barbara are the first family of golf. Um, and, yep. and they've done so much for children and so much for children's health. And that's why I wanted to share this with them. And, and it's a, an honor to be part of the Nicholas um, Children's Health Foundation in offering these books to kids and their families. A Walk in the Wood, Meditations on Mindfulness with a Bear Named Pooh. My pride and joy, as you can tell. What a great, uh, great um, sediment for, to be able to help such a worthy organization um, and uh, working with a great couple like the Nicholases, you're, you're exactly right. They've done so much. You know, Jack has received um, really some wonderful accolades over the years for his golfing, but he's actually given back throughout the communities um, more than he could ever have received in, in, uh, in his golfing career. Uh, they're just a wonderful couple and have done so much for much, not only the game. Much, much, yeah. much, much, much of that credit goes to Barbara. Exactly. I, I couldn't agree more. Well, Joe, once again, we're, we're out of time. We're at the, uh, at the cusp, as they say, of the ending of the show. And uh, I'm going to have to have you come back on because there's just so many things that we could, we could talk about. So I'm going to have you back on uh, before the, the season ends. But I know you've got so many other things. But uh, once again, let me just thank you uh, for your article. I'm excited to, for the readers to get their hot little hands on the next issue. Uh, which will be coming out uh, in a little bit, and I'll announce that in, in the upcoming shows. Uh, I don't have the date in front of me when it actually will hit newsstands, but I believe it's going to be in September at some point uh, when it will actually hit newsstands. But uh, I'll let the folks know. But thank you for, for that article, and uh, much continued success. And if the folks want to reach out and, and get in touch with you, if they want to work with you or just uh, you know uh, communicate it in some way, what's the best way they can do that, Joe? For, for uh, golf uh, and um, and business uh, and, and all of the forms of coaching, drjoeparent.com. But there's no periods in the middle, just D-R-J-O-E-P-A-R-E-N-T.com. And, of course, I always have zengolf.com in my Zengolf app. So um, there's plenty of opportunities. And, and, and if you want to delve into mindfulness, um, Go to the website, but also I have a YouTube channel, and I have golf and business. Uh, Dr. Joe Parent is the YouTube channel, and I have golf and business and mindfulness instruction 
that you can you can really take advantage of. So the website and the YouTube channel are the places to go. Perfect. Well, Joe, thank you very much once again. Uh, it's as you said, it was a it was a fast hour, wasn't it? <laughs> it went by quick. It's like we're just hanging out and talking over a beer. So I really enjoy it. <laughs> That's right. Well, thank you very much. And and as I said, I'll um, would love to have you come back and join me again on a future show. And uh, we'll we'll set that up uh, at some point. But uh, thank you very much for giving of your time, and thank you for all that you've done to not only give to this uh, great game, but also uh, to other areas as well. Uh, some very good words of wisdom that you've uh, expelled here this evening on the show, and I thank you very much for your time. And have a great weekend, and uh, I will see you next time here on Golf Talk Live. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Ted. You're welcome. All right. Good night. All right, that was my very special guest, Dr. Joe Parent, author of Zen Golf uh, and so many other things, and also his um, book, as he mentioned, uh, that is helping the uh, Nicholas Children's Hospital, uh, A Walk in the Wood, Meditations on Mindfulness with a Bear Named Pooh. They're giving out, the Nicholases are giving out through their uh, foundation at the hospital, uh, 300 copies. um, So to all of which is uh, just, uh, again, I I couldn't... uh, think of a better thing to put in their little hot little hands and uh, what a great couple they are. And you can also go to Amazon and just Google either Dr. Joe Parent or Zen Golf and you'll see uh, his book is still available on Amazon uh, as well. And it still ranks very high up in the searches as, as we talked about earlier. So uh, if you haven't read it, it's definitely a great book. It'll help both uh, your golf game, but it'll also help you uh, in everyday life as well. So get yourself a copy if you haven't already read it. Uh, And if you have, get another copy and give it to a friend. It's worthwhile. All right. I want to thank also uh, John Decker and Paul Castor for doing a great job on the panel. And thanks again, John, uh, for filling in for John Hughes this evening. And uh, I will see all of you next time right here on Golf Talk Live. God bless and have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks for listening to this evening's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. Remember to tune in each week at blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live if you can't join us live check out the on-demand section for previously aired broadcasts or listen on any of the following social media platforms itunes stitcher TuneIn, Castbox, TalkStream live and of course spotify to get updates on future shows and upcoming guests be sure to visit the show's facebook page golf talk live blog you can also follow me on twitter at ted and buck ceo remember to join me live each week for another great broadcast of Golf Talk Live. See you next time. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.